as we were singing that song, another song went through my mind. It's titled, Standing in Need of Prayer. So when we stand together, Brother J. Roar, would you lead us in prayer? prayer, and we need each other. We need prayers. I'd like to begin this afternoon by saying amen and expressing my appreciation and affirmation you, brethren, are shared this morning. I think it feels like they laid a very solid foundation for us as we consider what it means then to be a godly leader or a godly shepherd, however you want to look at it, homes. As I was finishing up studying this morning, there was a verse in, from Corinthians that kept going through my mind where Apostle Paul asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? And as our brethren already shared with us, outside of the grace of God, we are not. We look to the grace of God, the Word of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the presence of God in our lives to lead us in this. So I'd like to share just a bit of my thought process of uh, before we go into the message, it may help you understand a little bit the approach. Uh, there was, there's a gentleman that, his name slips me right now, but speaks on church history, and his premise is, ideals have consequences. And that's been a challenge to me over the years. Ideals have consequences, and they do. Now, let me say this. God is able to work in less than ideal situationless things. God has reached into lives of people who grew up in homes that were far less than ideal and made a beautiful representation of His grace in lives. There are also homes where the parents have followed God with their whole heart and children have made decisions that broke their hearts. I understand that. But as a whole, ideals have consequences. And we go into the Scripture, into the Old Testament, and I'm impressed with how often in the, in the wording of the way the Old Testament is presented to us, we see three generations or more. How often have you heard the term Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How often have, well, you look in Psalm 78, and we see at least four or five generations there as we are instructed in Psalm 78 on how to lead and to rear. And I say that to say this. I believe that we should have at the minimum a three-generation view when we make decisions in life. And it looks a little bit like this. When you're looking at a decision in life, you're facing a crossroad in life, pull out the history book and read about what happened when your grandpa's generation stood at that same crossroad and made decisions. Because the reality of it is, the end result of their decisions will most likely be the end result of our decisions. That's why, that's one of the reasons I enjoy reading history and genealogy. You may find this hard to believe. I can sit down with a, with a genealogy history book and spend a whole Sunday afternoon and enjoy every minute of it just tracing lines back and seeing how we're related to each other and how it works together. And another thing that's very challenging to me about that is 
you go back three or four generations and you see where a family all grew up in the same home. They ate the same potatoes. They worked the same garden. They had the same fellowship. They did everything. But here we are three or four generations later, and there's no, you wouldn't even recognize from their descendants they have any relation to each other. I've noticed when you start down through a, a genealogy in a, in a history book, when you start finding the word divorce, it just kind of explodes as you follow the line down. It just kind of blows up in the family. It becomes the trend for the family. And another thing there, when it says so-and-so served at a minister in such-and-such -such a church, you follow that line down, you start to see that coming out in his descendants. So I'm saying ideals have consequences. And we, we approach this subject from that premise. So I have a number of questions to, for you, and I'd like for a response. So next to Jesus Christ, who would you consider to be the greatest leader the world has ever known? Anyone? Thank you, Moses. Absolutely. Invite, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. So what do we know about Moses? Moses, you just said he was the greatest leader. What else do we know about Moses? Well, how can you be both? Or is there a connection? Yes. Thank you. Those are the two answers I was looking for. You're good. Because all great men, great leaders, are also meek. Humility is the greatest need in a leader, in a home, in church, wherever it's at. It's needed. True Christian leadership must be grounded in three foundational principles. One, faith in God. Two, obedience to God. And three, humility before God and man. So three principles, faith in God, obedience to God, humility before God and man. So let's consider a bit together about this man that God referred to as my servant. Would God refer to us in that way? Put your name in there, is my servant. Do we have that relationship with God? Now, chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we'll drop in at verse 23. And we'll notice some things about the life of Moses. By faith, when Moses he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So, the first thing in being a good leader is, is choose your parents carefully, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, let's reverse that. Be a good parent to your children. All right, Moses had godly parents. May our children have godly parents that choose well. He said he was born, he was here three months. Why? Because they see he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They chose to risk their lives, their well-being, for the life of this son because they seen he was a child who had potential. May we see our children as children of great potential. The next we come to verse 24, and we look now at Moses when he begins to make choices. We notice back in chapter 20, in verse 23, that Moses' parents made choices based on what? Faith. Moses, when he came to years, came to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what did, upon what premise did he base his choice? By faith. You see the transmission of faith from parent to child. Moses observed his parents living in faith, he too walked in faith. Moses had choices to make. You know, sometimes we 
uh, go to high school graduations and the speakers will say something kind of like, well, you can be anything you want to be. And I'm always kind of thinking, no, you can't. You can't be anything you want to be. You need to follow God's leading in your life. But Moses could have almost been anything he wanted to be. He had a Hebrew lineage. He was adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. I think the choices for his life was wide and varied. But what does it say he chose to do? First, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For, for a season. Moses established his identity firmly as a person of God, and we need to do the same. Notice verse 25. What's the next choice that he made? He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So Moses, by faith, took the long view of life. He chose a path of obedience. He chose a path of suffering over short-term pleasure. And here again, ideals have consequences. Our children are going to be observing, and they are observing, what drives our choices, short-term or long-term. Moses made long-term choices. Okay. Esteeming the approach of Christ of greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had, he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Sort of a tongue twister. But again, he looked at all of life, he considered it in the perspective of eternity, and he chose the life of suffering and service and sacrifice over all the pleasures that he could have enjoyed in Egypt for a short period of time. Because he was looking ahead. He turned his back. The Scripture says he forsook. He fled from. He got out of there. And he aligned himself with God. Verse 28. No, verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, seeing him who is invisible. So here again, in Moses' faith, he caught a glimpse of he who is invisible, and that's referring to God. And God became the focus of his life. Verse 28. Through faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, lest he, should, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now we see the second point here. First was faith in God. The second is obedience to God. So Moses participated in God's directive for the Passover. Also, because he had respect for eternal life and the things of eternity. And then he also led. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians essayed to do and were drowned. So, by faith, Moses was used of God to lead God's people through what seemed to be impossible circumstances, but God was there with Moses at his command, and God moved through him in a mighty way to the saving of his people. And may we be in that same position as fathers, that we are there at, with God, in faith in God, choosing things of eternal value so that God can work through us to lead our children safely through this life or the Red Sea of our experiences here in this life. One of the things that, that challenged me probably the most about Moses is, is the two times he fell on his face for 40 days and 40 nights before God in order to intercede for the very people who was making his life extremely difficult. 
That is probably the most challenging thing in my personal life. Do I have that love and that compassion for the people God has called me to minister to, both at home and in the kingdom, that I would go without food for 40 days to keep God from destroying the people who was making my life difficult? That's a real challenge. That's a real compassionate leader. You know, Moses wasn't perfect. He made God angry, remember, when God was calling him to come in and to lead the people out. He kept having excuses. It says God became angry with Moses. And as we look at that, what was the problem? Moses was not trusting God to give him the ability to lead and fulfill the task that God was calling him to. And I'd like to challenge us in that. Trust God. Yes, being a father, being a leader can look large, it can look daunting, it can look challenging. But remember, the one who has called us to lead will empower us to fulfill the calling that he has brought us to in our lives, just as he was able to give Moses what he needed to carry him through. Moses also became angry with the people once, and it cost him entrance into the promised land. So I encourage us to be careful in that. James tells us that the wrath of man does not fulfill the righteousness of God. So let's be careful with our emotions in doing that. Let's move on from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Any great leaders in the New Testament? Someone want to share with me one great leader that might stand out in the New Testament? That, that's good. Thank you, Paul. Anyone else? Peter, that's good. John the Baptist, right? Anyone else? Stephen, that's good. You still haven't got the one I want to talk about. See, the problem is we don't know his name. He's the centurion, all right? Luke chapter 7, verse 1, And when he had ended all these sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was near unto him was sick, ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching them that they would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, That he was worthy, for he should do this, for he loveth our nation, hath built for us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, my servant shall be healed. For I am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. I see this man as an example in leadership. And let me explain why. The way we respond to those who God has placed over us in authority is a very clear indicator of the way we will respond to those whom God has called us to lead. Does that make sense? The way we respond to the authority figures that God has placed in our lives is a clear indicator of the way we will lead those that God has called us to be an authority over. Let me explain a bit. I want to be careful, but here, I want you to understand the premise of how I think about this. 
I'm 55 years old, and I'm at the point where I can start to look back and see trends and patterns. You know, I remember my grandparents' generation, and I remember my parents' generation, and now I see my children's generation. So it's about a four-generation view there that I'm privileged to begin to look at. And not all of the men my age are still with their wives. And some of the men that I grew up around children leave home as soon as they hit 18 or 21. And I see how that pattern develops and also see that those are the homes that really struggled to appreciate the authority that God had established for them to live under. Is that making any sense? If, if I resist this church and this church and this church and the milk inspector and the serviceman from George's and the building inspector and there's just constant tension between me and the people that God has placed over me to speak into my life, my children will pick that up. It will become the way that we relate to each other and it isn't long until it's going. And in extreme cases, I've observed children going back in to homes where men my age were at and moving mother out. And I'm not condoning that because of the struggles in the home. So brethren, I say again, the way we relate to those over us is probably the way we relate and lead those that we're responsible for. This man that Jesus called out and said, I have not seen so great faith in all of Israel, came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I'm sending my servant to you. I'm paraphrasing. Philip's paraphrase here. I'm paraphrasing that I'm not worthy to have you come into my home, so I've sent a servant. And then he said, but I also have servants. See, I, he said, I kind of understand this This." servants, and when I tell them to go, they go, and I tell them to come, they come, and I tell them what to do, they do it. But at the same time, he said, even though I'm in that position in life, I don't feel worthy to have Jesus walk across the threshold of my home. Brethren, I, I, I appeal to us to have that spirit in our hearts. I appeal to us to live that way. All right. That was sort of the basis for what I want to share the rest of the afternoon here. Brother John Hartsford told me once, he said, child rearing is an endeavor where we get the test first and then we learn the lessons later. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. And out of that premise, we all come here and we can enjoy, enjoy join Apostle Paul and he said, although I've not already, though not not as though I've already attained, neither already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend for that which I'm also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count my, not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I don't know where you're at in your journey of leading children or your family, but I trust we're all there that's saying, even though there's been progress made in growth in our lives, we are not at all where we believe God can take us or where we feel we ought to be. There's always room to grow. The fact is, I told the committee that uh, 
there was a lot of other men that was a lot more qualified to bring this message than I am, and one of them in a tongue-in-cheek way did something to me I've done to him already. He said, we knew that, but we wanted you to do it anyway. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, so now you know the, the rest of the story. But this is, the, this is a subject I'm deeply passionate about because the structure of the home and the family is the foundation of society. As the home goes, so goes the church, the school, society, everything is based upon the family. And Psalm 11:3 says this, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, do you think we're living in a, in a society that's, that's attempting to destroy the foundations of home and family? Yeah, like never before. So do we throw up our hands and say, what's the use? Or do we take the glasses half full approach and say, brethren, we have an opportunity now to show the world through our marriages and through our relationships with our children and our homes what the light of Jesus Christ looks like in a way that no other society may have ever had opportunity to do. That's how I'm seeing it. Brethren, we have opportunity to simply have a strong, solid, godly marriage and a good relationship with your children and an intact home is a tremendous testimony in the society in which we live. That wasn't always the case. We have opportunity, brethren, to be lights in a tremendous way. But how do we do it? 1 Corinthians 3, you don't need to turn to these. I put the verses in here because I knew the time would go fast. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. So, brethren, first of all, we have to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ in a spirit of humility and obedience. We have to follow the precepts of God's Word. Precepts is a word I really like. Uh, the psalmist used it a lot, and especially in Psalm 119. He said, Oh, how I love out thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Through thy commandments thou hast made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what is a precept? Anyone have a dictionary in your mind? A precept is a general rule to regulate behavior or thought. A precept is a general rule to regulate behavior or thought. Isn't that our responsibility as parents rearing children? To regulate thought and behavior. Another definition is this. Precepts are little life lessons that are usually passed down to children by authority figures such as parents, teachers, and religious figures. Brethren, I trust in our homes we are all three. We're the parent, we're the teacher, and we're the religious example, or the spiritual example. So read the book of Psalms and pay attention to the word precepts, because it's our job that we are, it's what we are taught, what we are commanded to teach and to share. You see, a leader is one who leads the way, and I'm going to switch over and use the word shepherd and leader interchangeably here, because we are shepherding. 
shepherding in contrast to driving. A shepherd does not drive his sheep. He leads his sheep. He goes before them to show the way. We do not drive our families toward godliness. We cannot do that. We must lead them toward godliness. Someone put it this way, water always seeks its own level and does not move above it. So it's foolish for us to feel like that we can expect our children to excel to a higher level of spirituality than what they're able to observe in our lives. Yes, they will. As heirs are in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. And I trust that we are equipping our children to far outpace us in the kingdom. But when they're little and growing up, we can't expect them to surpass us. But yeah, we may be able to, maybe I should try to under, help you understand what I'm saying. I trust that, that our children have opportunities that I may have never had to serve in the kingdom. And we should be responsible in our homes and our lives to make that a possibility and not nail them down to making money to the point that God can't reach in their life and call them into work in his kingdom somewhere other than home or at home, whichever. Families left without godly leadership will have the tendency to move toward the path of least resistance. As parents and leaders, we're given a great responsibility and a wonderful opportunity to follow the great shepherd of the sheep and to lead them, those he has entrusted to our care. Hebrews 13, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you, that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, brethren, we are under shepherds under the great chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it says, as he works in our lives, the great shepherd of the sheep, as he works in our lives, he is able to make us perfect or mature to every good work. He's able to make it that we can do his will. He's able to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And it's all through Jesus Christ to him be glory forever and ever. We must be under the great shepherd of the sheep. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can the children that live in our homes that are under our care that are young, is that what they feel in their hearts? That security, that safety of being someone they can go to. So how do we shepherd godly families? Isaiah says there's two places God dwells. Can you tell me where they're at? He dwells in eternity and in the spirit, of the, and he dwells in the, in the humble and the contrite heart. So our goal as teachers, parents, ministry, whatever we are today as leaders, is to shape the hearts of our children so that they will become a place where the spirit of God dwells. That, that is our responsibility is to shape the hearts of our children so it will be soft and pliable place for the Spirit of God to take up residence and dwell. You see, it, it's not real complex if you think about it. What's a godly family? A godly family is family where God occupies and directs the hearts of the family members. That's, that's fairly simple. That makes a godly family. That is very different than rearing children to look right and to perform right in the eyes of others. Extremely different than that, okay? Jesus had hard things to say about religious people who looked right on the outside, but their hearts were cold and hard and stony. He said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And, and 
God lamented that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus had hard things to say to the scribes and Pharisees. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, maybe whitewashed walls and tombs, and they were honoring him with their lips, but their hearts were not a place where the Spirit of God could take up residence without conversion. God wants our hearts, and when he has our heart, he will have all of us. So how do we help our children to have hearts that God can dwell in? First, we need to secure the heart as a father, as a leader. We find the word heart used 90 times in the book of Proverbs alone. Five times in the book of Proverbs, the, the writer cries out, My son, give me your heart. My son. Do we have that passion and compassion and drive to have the hearts of our children? And, and ask, you know, just ask God to give us the wisdom to secure the hearts of our children. In Psalm, excuse me, in Proverbs 23, 26, he says, My son, give me thine heart and let thy eyes observe my ways. The heart cry of a father who's walking with God and saying, My son, I want you to experience the presence of God in your life the way I'm experiencing the presence of God in my life. Come with me and let's walk together, dear son. Example and influence. So, fathers, how do we win the hearts of our children? A shepherd must first gain trust of the lambs to reach their hearts. And a lamb will only trust a shepherd that is kind and caring to their mother. Have you ever seen some newborn lambs chasing the buck sheep around the field? No, they're with their mother. Shepherds, your children's mother is where you begin to win your children's hearts. Mothers carry these children in their womb for nine months, and they birth them, and they nurse them, and there's a special bond between children and mothers. We want our children's hearts. We must love and cherish their mother. You see, if little lambs observe their mother getting their heart hurt, how likely are they to entrust their hearts to one who hurt their mother's heart? This is not original with me. My wife read it somewhere, and she was reading recently and shared it with me. And his little saying said something to this effect, that a parent's, that parent love for each other brings more security into a child's life than the parent's love for the child as far as having security in a young child's heart and life. Love your children's mother. Fathers, if we want to blow our children out of the water, be unfaithful to their mother. Get into adultery, pornography, flirting, fantasy, inappropriate jokes, and like. It will unsettle our children in a devastating way. It undermines the security. Children need security. And if we don't provide that security for them in our home, they will look for it elsewhere. Young boys will look for security with the wrong crowd. Young girls have a tendency to look for security in any man who will show her attention. Make sure they find their security at home. Brethren, beware of role reversal in our marriages. What I mean by that is where the husband is passive and the mother takes over the leadership in the home. It just doesn't work out good in the long run. Beware of role reversal. Fathers, 
husbands, we need to lead our wives. Not only love them and cherish them, but lead them. See, God hasn't called women to be the administrators in the home or the church. And we can save a lot of problems if we lead in a way that, that isn't needed or allowed. I already said, the shepherd must lead and not drive. A good shepherd will lead by example. Jesus said, follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Do not require one standard and live by another. I'm told as church leaders, we need to live to a higher standard than what we require of others, and I believe that's true in our homes as well. I've already said, do not operate on a premise of what other people will think. Be humble. Be willing to admit mistakes. Brethren, ask forgiveness when we need it. We all fail. Do not come across as always being right. And model respect towards those with whom you disagree. Model respect toward those with whom you disagree. There's two things that was really important to me when our children were young. One is I bought a stick shift car because I wanted them to all learn to drive stick shift. And the other was I wanted them to have opportunity to submit to people who think very differently than our family thinks. And that's one of the advantages of, of school. I appreciate that. That our children had opportunity to go to school and have teachers from different homes, teachers who think differently, and learn the blessing of submitting to the authority that's different than the way we think at home sometimes. Because someday they're going to be out in the real world and they're going to face some real struggles if they haven't learned to submit. You see, all authority is instituted by God. and We won't look up the verses for time's sake. Therefore, modeling, teaching, and requiring respect for all authority figures is paramount in rearing godly families. It's paramount. So, brethren, what conversations are our children exposed to around the table at home? Back again. The serviceman, the milk inspector, the building inspector, the deacon, preacher, the school teacher, the bishop, the sermon that was preached Sunday, the school board. What conversations are our children exposed to in those settings? It's going to develop their mindset toward authority, either be a blessing or a curse to them for generations to come. Recently I had a conversation with a brother, and he said, you know, in my wife's family, they never talk negative about sermons or things like that in their home. It had a very positive effect. And I've observed where families have taken the other approach. And there's a real reluctance to trust authority coming out of that setting. Just sharing my heart, brother. All right, that's securing the heart. Now we have shaping the heart. We must shape the will of our children and not crush the spirit in the process. We crush by belittling, making fun of looks, activities, mistakes, whatever. Every child is created by God with different abilities. Do not compare your children with each other or with someone else's children. Brethren, life is not a competition. <laughs> it's not a competition. It's not. It's about dying to self and serving others and ultimately about serving God. And every child needs to learn to that concept 
in the context of unconditional love, not to be catered to and spoiled, but we love you unconditionally. We're here to direct you. That's why we discipline you. That's why we direct you. That's why we say no to certain things. But life is not competition. We believe, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, that the entrance into the Christian life is through death to self, right? We must die. We identify with the cross so we can identify with the resurrection. So how young is too young to begin to teach our children that the, the gateway to a fulfilling life is death to self? How young is too young to begin? Which leads to this. Life does not revolve around our children. Just as life doesn't revolve around Father. Who does it revolve around? God. Life revolves around God. How does that work out in life? Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Life revolves around God and joy flows into our lives as we submit to God's ways. Ephesians 5, again in verse 33, it talks about marriage. We've already talked about that. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That is absolutely paramount that your children experience that on a daily basis. Now it comes into children. And here we have three foundational principles for godly families, then gives us several commandments as fathers. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. That may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. An awful lot of instruction in a short period of time. So children are to obey their parents in the Lord. And this takes us back to the fact that life does not revolve around the child. It revolves around God. God has ordained parents to rear children in the Lord and under His authority. And this is very different than rearing our children to make ourselves look good. Very different. We as parents need our children to realize that both we and they operate in the fear of the Lord in our families. And the ultimate goal for both parents and children is to honor and obey God. That's our ultimate goal, is to honor and obey God. And our child rearing flows out of that goal, not to impress Aunt Gertrude and Uncle Jeremiah. We're here to please God, right? And as we honor God as parents by following His directives and disciplining and loving and directing our children's lives, our children then learn to honor God by obeying us and if we're godly parents, is an extension of obeying God. If we're working under God, we require our children to obey us. It's an extension of our attempt to rear a godly family. And we must teach them at a very young age that we are rearing them in obedience and reverence to God's call and responsibility in our lives. We are not the final authority. God is. Father, let's always remember that. We are not the final authority. God is. We are under him, just as the centurion was under the man above him. But he was responsible for the soldiers that were under him, so to speak. don't really like that term, but that's, you get the point. We are not the final authority. God is, and that makes all the difference. And verse 1 says, this is right before the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The key is in the Lord, 
for this is right. This is God's way of doing it. And now we come to children, and it says, this is the first commandment with promise. Children, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that you may live long upon the earth and enjoy the blessing of God. We understand that. Now, God zeroes in on fathers in verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We have one negative and three positive directives here. And I believe if we fail in the area of the negative, we will not do well in the positives. How do we irritate our children? By making it about us rather than about God. Exasperating them. Frustrating them to the point of inciting rebellion. And it could be taken from that word if we really study it. By being inconsistent in our personal lives and our discipline. Be consistent. So a little junior doesn't get laughed at for doing something today and spanked for doing it tomorrow. Be consistent. Children need to know where the boundaries are at. It gives them safety. If there's an electric fence around the pasture and you turn your horse out every day and you've moved the fence 10 feet one way or the other, the horse is never going to know where to stop running. Make sure the fence stays at the same spot unless God reveals to you you need to move it <laughs> and then tell them why you moved it. <laughs> yeah. By embarrassing or publicly humiliating our children, don't make jokes at the expense of your wife or your children. Don't do that. By being critical or pleased, and I shared this back in Highland County. Some of you may have figured that out already. Um, and I said, this is one where uh, God's really had to work in my life. Uh, don't be impossible to please. Give children time to learn. Make mistakes and learn from them. Fathers, do we have the courage and humility to ask God and our children if we are frustrating them and angering them with inconsistencies in our lives? Let's think a bit about Jesus and his relationship. often sought opportunity to be alone with God. He went to God for strength, encouragement, and direction. God publicly and privately met his son's needs. Jesus went up in Luke 6. He went up to the mountainside and prayed all night. In Luke 11 that he was there with his disciples, and when he finished praying, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. They observed something about Jesus' communication with his Father and said, we want that in our lives. Mark 1, he went out and prayed in a solitary place. Now Matthew 3, 16, another one of our 3, 16s. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And heaven came, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have Jesus there in person. We have the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, and we have the voice of God thundering out of the heavens. There's a trinity. I'm sure that was for the benefit of all those who observed it. But I also believe that was for the benefit of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He heard the voice of his Father say publicly, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Your children want to hear that. Your children want affirmation because they want to please you. They need to hear that. And be sure you mean it. <laughs> yes. Fathers, have we affirmed our love and pleasure in our children's lives? Children long for that. I've personally seen tears in the eyes of adult children, both men and women, who long to hear from their father that they are loved and well-pleasing in his sight. Not because of performance, because they've excelled at something that is really important in their father's eyes, but simply because they are father's child and are struggling. If we are struggling in our relationship with our children, start there. 
Have we done that? Do our children feel unconditional love and acceptance apart from, from meeting expectations? See, the prodigal son knew where to go when he hit rock bottom. He knew where he was. There was no question in his mind that he'd find a spot at home, even if it was with the servants. Keep relationship with your children. As long as you have relationship, you have influence. If you sever relationship, you also sever the opportunity for most influence as well. We can provoke our children by being different at home than we are at church. Inconsistencies, inconsistencies frustrate. Quickly, train up a child in the way he will go, and he's old, he will not depart from it. How many of you believe that's true? We could separate here and have a debate, literally or figurative. I believe it. If you study that, it says it's something that that child cannot turn off. doesn't mean he'll always obey it. It's something he can't turn off. It'll always be in his conscience. It says it will not depart from him. And maybe we ought to focus more on the train up part rather than just is this true or not. It will not depart from him. But in reality, families do exhibit basic concepts that were taught. Business endeavors, etc. The family where hanging a huge buck on the wall is important to dad will likely produce boys that want to hunt and get a big one too. Families that are making the most money possible and pushing day and night at the expense of everything else will probably produce children that will have that same drive. Families that said the work of the church is the most important thing in life and our occupations are simply means by which we support ourselves to work in the church will raise children with that mindset as well. Children do exhibit the basic concepts we're taught. So I do believe it's true. Train up a child in the way you go, yes, one child may make very different decisions than the other child in the same home, but the basic concepts will be in the base of their intellect, and they won't be able to shake that. Just like Dad, what are you going to be, my boy, when you've reached manhood years? A doctor, a lawyer, an actor, great, moving throngs to laughter and tears. But he shook his head as he gave a reply in a serious way that he had. I don't think I care to be any of them. I want to be like my dad. He wants to be like his dad, you men. Did you ever think, as you pause, that your boy who watches your every move is building a set of laws? He's molding a life that's modeled by yours, whether it's good or bad. Depends on the kind of example you set for the boy who'd like to be like his dad. Would you have him go wherever you go? Would you have him do just the things you do? And see with your eyes be and see that your eyes behold and give faith to the God that you woo? When you see the worship that shines from the eyes of your lovable little lad, could you rest content if he gets his wish and grows up to be like his dad? Very quickly, the antidote for selfish living is living a life of gratitude. We don't have time to go over it this morning, this afternoon. Study the New Testament, every verse that calls us to be thankful and express gratitude, and be ye thankful, time and again. To raise a children in a home that exudes gratitude 
is going to be a tremendous blessing to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You see, we don't deserve anything. Brother Josh shared with that this morning. We don't deserve a thing other than death. And everything we have as a blessing is because of the grace of God. And even though we may have little and even though the road may be rocky, we have much to be thankful for because we have Jesus Christ. We have Jesus Christ. Children learn what they live. Teach manners. Teach respect. Teach about God and His precepts. Make sure our children know our voice. Jesus said, I put forth my sheep and they follow me because they know my voice. Do our children know our voice? And if not, why not? Are there other voices more influential than theirs, than ours in their lives? Continue admonishing, teaching, shaping our children, training the mind. We must operate in the Lord, and our methods must be of the Lord. It is God who has ordained the family unit as the basic unit of society, and every other institution flows out of that institution of the home. God has given us a pattern for family, and we all as parents are accountable to Him for our response to His directives. We'll close with a quote. I'm reluctant to do this in some ways because when I quote people who have written many books, it's not an endorsement on everything they've ever written, okay? There's a man by the name of Dr. Kevin Lehman. He's a birth order fellow. Last I heard, he's somewhere around 60 books that he's authored in his life, and they relate to leadership. One is on business, and the rest of them are on home, family, and marriage. As an older man, he concluded his life study with this statement. If you want to be a great parent, you must live a submissive life. God bless you.